Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Kinfolk, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, send us a word. Open our hearts. We are ready. Amen. When I was in seminary, one of the most life-changing classes I ever took was taught by a man who was not a seminary professor. He was the director of an organization that provided services to disabled adults. And he himself was the father of a child with a disability. And the, the course was called Ministry with People with Developmental Disabilities. And it utterly changed my theology, my thinking, and my way of life. Today we have this story of Jesus, this Galilean prophet and teacher and healer, preaching in a synagogue, and people are likely excited to hear him. They come into church, listen to the new guy preach, and in comes this woman who has been bent over for 18 years. I imagine that she comes to church regularly. I imagine that she likely has seen very little in the last 18 years, but being bent over, she must look at the floor or look at her feet. I wonder about her perspective. I wonder about how she must be a listener, perhaps more than she is a looker. I think that in our own experiences of life, there are many times when we find ourselves likewise bent over. And one of my favorite parts about this gospel story today, as pointed out by uh, a theologian, Joseph Mann, is that unlike many of the other stories of Jesus' signs and healings, where people fall before him, touch his garment, cry out to him, or pester the disciples, the woman does nothing of the sort. Though she has been bent over for 18 years, she doesn't cry out to him. But rather the gospel says when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. I think about our Savior in that synagogue, seeing that woman. I think about the way that he might have looked in her eyes, and to do so, likely would have had to kneel down, or take her hands, or lower himself down to look her in the eyes. I wonder what that eye contact had to do with her liberation, with setting her free from her burdens. In the class on ministry with people with developmental disabilities, I was liberated from a mindset that I'd been carrying for the first 20 or so years of my life. This idea that disability and brokenness are one and the same. In the class, we learned not only how to minister alongside people with disabilities, but also the theological importance of understanding ourselves as disabled. Here is something that is true. Nearly every single one of us at some point in our lives will be disabled. That's the truth. Unless you're an uh, Olympian that gets you know, hit by a bread truck in the middle of life, you're going to experience some disability at some point. I got my first set of glasses when I was 31 years old. I had no idea that I would ever need glasses until I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Memphis, Tennessee to renew my driver's license 
And for the life of me, I could not pass that eye test. I kept sticking my eye in the machine, and the lady said, sir, please try again. And I couldn't do it. And I went to an optometrist. He said, yeah, your eyes are all screwed up. I mean, he didn't say that. He had, like, doctor words. But it's like, yeah, you, you need glasses. This is your life now. Likewise, when I went to a mentor of mine at that same stage in my life, and I told him that I'd been having this journey with my therapist and a psychiatrist, and they'd recommended to me a medicine that they thought that I should take because there was some deficiency in my mind. And I bemoaned that this was going to be my life now. And he very gently put his hand on my shoulder. And he reached over. He tapped his glasses. And he tapped my glasses. And he said, it's just like that. It's just like that. Sometimes we need something to help us. I'm often asked why I serve communion to children. I think that it's a strange question in a lot of ways, but people who are departing the Roman Catholic Church are often finding themselves in Protestant churches, and in the Roman Catholic Church, your first communion is a RBD. It's a really big deal. And I hearken back to that class that I took in seminary, where we learned about people with disabilities accomplishing miracles and living full and wonderful lives. And I said, I can't wrap my brain around how I would justify denying communion to anyone. I said, they would say, but the children don't understand what it means. And I would say, honestly, I'm not entirely sure I understand what it means. The reason we call it a holy mystery we do it because we're invited to do it, not because we have a comprehensive understanding of the Eucharist or Eucharistic theology. And I said, then if I would deny it to a child because they can't understand what it means, is there some sort of test that I need to administer to everyone who comes up here to make sure that they understand what it means? What about when I'm old and I'm aging and my mind begins to fail me? Should then I be denied communion because I don't understand what it means? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I'd much rather be uh, condemned by God for being too generous with God's grace than to be confronted with those who I denied God's presence to. And so when we understand this story in terms of liberation and ministry in our experience of Jesus Christ and we understand it as our own, as a story about us and our own disabilities, we learn that oftentimes when we feel at our weakest and most bent over, it is when Jesus Christ may place a hand on our shoulders, tap our glasses, or be there in our presence in our midst. It's tempting also to read in this story and make this, uh, this uh, leader of the synagogue who becomes indignant by this healing, make him into the bad guy uh, or the foil or something like that. I think that that's a misunderstanding of the culture of that time and age. Remember that in Judaism there is a robust and historic tradition of debate. And not debate to win an argument, but to, to debate and get closer to God's truth, the Torah. And so I always often read these confrontations as a friendly back and forth by people who are curious about what Jesus believes is true about the Torah. 
And so this synagogue leader, maybe he doesn't have any specific uh, 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 antagonism toward Jesus, but for the benefit of everyone who's there that day, says to Jesus, well, hey, how do you square this with the Sabbath? Not because he wants to condemn Jesus, but because he's curious about Jesus' answer. And Jesus gives us this story, this wonderful thing. And he says, he says you hypocrites, directed toward all of them who were gathered that day, he says, you know, we, we untie our animals, our oxes and donkeys from the manger, and we get them water on the Sabbath day. It's like that. It's liberating. Liberation is a Sabbath work. In uh, Henri Nouwen's last book, the last book he ever wrote, Henri Nouwen was a theologian and a scholar, and he was the chair of theology at, at, at Harvard uh, Divinity School, titan of preaching and, um, and, and Christian thought in the 20th century. After he retired, a friend of his invited him to do something radical, uh, to join him and move into a L'Arche community. L'Arche communities are houses, uh, sometimes they're dormitories, but they're, they're set up with a various, and L'Arche just means arch, or it's, it's talking about the rainbow. But they're communities where half of the residents have moderate to severe disabilities and half of them do not. And together they work together. They all have work that they can do. They all labor together and they're equal. In that it's not a house, it's not like a second uh, halfway house or something like that. They they are all one in that community, and it's very beautiful, and they're typically partnered together. And Henry Nowen, he's he's in his seventies, but he agrees to stay at this house and experience this unique kind of community life. And he's partnered with a young man named Adam. Adam is twenty-one years old, and Adam has been profoundly disabled from birth. Adam cannot speak, he cannot walk, he can't communicate, he can't care for himself. And so Henry, in, then in his 70s, spends his days with this young man named Adam. And out of that experience, he wrote a book called Adam, God's Beloved, one of his last books. It's a very short book, and it's a very important book to read. But what Henry learned, and what, what was the gift that Adam gave him was the liberation to see God's image in Adam, in that disabled young man. Not as somebody who was broken, but as somebody who was profoundly beautiful and filled with the wonders of God's creation, was somehow made in the image of God fearlessly, wondrously. And Henry awoke to the realization that God so deeply loves us, even in our disability, that God descends to be disabled. That indeed, one of the most profound messages of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is that God understands what it's like to be disabled. For Jesus and God are fully disabled on the cross of Calvary. And that God can empathize with that disability. Sometimes, though, it can engender in us a sense of anger and frustration. I am reminded of a man who worshipped at a church that I served who had been hard of hearing since his birth. And he had taken offense to uh, 
a particular ministry that we were doing. I don't remember. I think it was a feeding ministry or something like that. And his anger was that he felt that we were enabling people to become lazy or not work hard or something like that. The man was in his late 80s. And I wanted to understand more about why he felt this way. Pastors and therapists and other people who work in the healing arts, we know that when somebody opens their mouth in anger, they're oftentimes telling you, the, 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 they're describing the symptoms of their own sickness. And so you start to look with the, with the third eye of ministry. You try to see, uh, you hear beyond those words and try to figure out what it is that, that the thing that they're angry about is oftentimes the cancer that has consumed them. And so I asked this man to have a series of conversations with me following worship, and we did, we did so for a few weeks. And on the final time we sat down together where I thought that we were about to have a breakthrough, I asked him, what is it to you that we give these resources away to those who need them? And with tears in his eyes, he told me the story about how after he had finished his education, after he had done all of this work to become a very competent accountant, he was, he was, he was a CPA, he could not get a job to save his life. He'd aced all of his tests. He knew what he was doing. But because he was hard of hearing in an age where that disability made it so profoundly difficult for him to communicate with any of his employers, he said it took him 20 attempts before he finally got a job. And through tears, he told me, nobody helped me. Nobody helped me. That frustration, that profound experience of being given this unfair disadvantage in the face of the world and then the world's cruelty can compound our disability with cynicism and anger so that we lash out and we somehow complete this cruel arithmetic that says if I suffered, then everyone should have to suffer the way that I suffered. The liberation in today's story is that when this woman is set free from her suffering, she takes the other path. She chooses instead to praise God. And so if we suffer, let our suffering change us into people who will say, I will now go forth into the world, not so that others might suffer the way that I did, but so that I can make sure this never happens to anyone else so that I can choose to be an advocate for others who might suffer in this way. I want to close with this reading from Isaiah. For what we know, it could be the same texts that Jesus was reading in that synagogue that day. It says, If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the noonday. That is the word of God that liberates us to say that no, not that we wouldn't have disability and not that we won't experience gloom and darkness, but that if we, out of that experience, choose to make of it a new ministry, and out of that experience, go into the world and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, I can't think of any better way to put it than that. 
That even in that gloom and darkness, we will experience the liberating presence of God. If you honor this, God says, if you are not going in your own ways, serving your own interests, pursuing your own affairs, you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. What a beautiful image for those of us who have known disability and for those of us who have dwelt in gloom. What could be better? What could be better? So, whether we are born into church, hunched over, having seen nothing but the ground for the last 18 years of our lives, and find the curious face of this rabbi kneeling in front of us and taking our head in his own and saying, I see you, I see you, or it is us as members of the body of Christ going into the world and getting on the level with those who are experiencing disability, frustration, grief, anger, and pain, and saying to them, I see you. God says that the result of that decision will be joy and blessing, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. This is the word of God, and this is the work of the church in the world. And let all God's children say, Amen.